Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to part two of the history leading up to the Stockholm bloodbath. Last time we left off in August of 1387, as a contingent of Swedish nobles sailed for Denmark in order to negotiate with the regent, Magrede, on how to ensure an overthrow of their current Swedish king, and instead place the Swedish crown on the head of Magrede's son, Olaf. Magrede was not only willing to back this daring plan, she had already made it her own by issuing the declaration that he was already king of the Swedes. She was, in other words, not just willing to talk, she was ready to act and fight in order to seize the throne of Sweden. Alas, these dreams were never to be realized, for in the warm days of mid-August, Olaf, a now headstrong 17-year-old young man, died. It was unexpected, sudden, and mysterious. According to contemporary chroniclers, he died clutching his chest, which has led later historians to believe he might have suffered a heart attack, though the inevitable whisperings of poison were also heard. There were even rumours that he had not died at all, but instead been spirited off to avoid the Swedish debacle. But more on that later. For Magreda, the mother, the grief was heartfelt and shocking. For Magreda, the regent, the grief was marred by a sense of urgency. She may have been a king's daughter, married a king and indeed mothered a king, but she had never herself been acclaimed queen in her own right. The medieval title of queen denoted only marriage to a king rather than indicating any extent of individual power. With Olaf's death, Magreda's function as regent became null and void, and the possibility of her continuing to dictate the affairs of Denmark would be tenuous at best, or more likely, simply dwindle down to naught. She had no other sons to quickly present as another crown candidate. So she did what rulers have done since Julius Caesar. She adopted a new son to continue her ultimate ambition of uniting the crowns of Norway, Sweden and Denmark. She found her new son in the Duchy of Pomerania. This medieval and early modern duchy was situated on the banks of the River Oder, which crosses the current German and Polish borders on the southernmost coast of the Baltic Sea. This rich and oft-contested tract of land was in 1387 ruled by Vatislaw III, who had sired a son, Bogislaw, 
and it was this mere five-year-old boy whom Magreda in early 1388 sought to adopt through a familial claim. For Borgeschlau was the maternal grandson of Ingeborg, Magreda's elder sister. Remember her? She, whose own son, Albrecht, had been set to rule Denmark, had not Magrede pushed her own, now very dead son, in front. And while both Bogislaw's parents were still very much alive in 1388, his father in particular saw the absolute potential of having Magrede adopt his offspring. The Duchy of Pomerania had historical ties to Denmark. Denmark had in years past aided the duchy in fighting off the ever-present and ever-powerful Hanseatic League's encroachment on their territories. And Denmark had also, during the Viking Age, staked their own flag in Pomeranian soil and ruled parts of it. Now, in the 14th century, the duchy and the kingdom of Denmark were, well, if not outright friends, then certainly allies. The duke surmised that he would gain an ally with a formidable army were his son to sit on the throne of Denmark. The duke would gain a powerful ally if his son were to wear the crown of Norway and possess its vast holdings. And with luck, the duke would enrich his own holdings in the Baltic Sea, where his son to win the strategically important kingdom of Sweden. So the Duke of Pomerania handed over his son, Bogislaw, who by early 1389 was well ensconced in the court of Magrede. She renamed him Eric and hailed him King of Denmark. But it would take another eight hard-fought years for Magreda to bend the rest of the North to her will. Independent-minded Norwegians, they fought an ultimately futile battle for independence, if not outright secession. And the House of Mecklenburg, who still ruled Sweden, put up a fight with their Swedish allies who were wary of the taxes the Danes might inflict on their silver and salt. But on the 17th of June, 1397, through promises of titles, through raids on resisting fortresses and castles, and through the prospect of powerful positions, the wary were silenced and the ambivalent were brought to heel. And literally, made to bend the knee as the 13-year-old Eric was crowned king of the three Nordic countries. The crown was placed on his head in the Swedish Cathedral of Kalmar, and the cathedral lent its name to this union of crowns, known thereafter as the Kalmar Union, a union which would last until 1523. But that was all in the future. For now, in the summer of 1397, 
Magreda held the reins of power in the old Viking lands of her ancestors as she had always dreamed of. She may have been reminded by the men advising her that her day would end when Eric came of age. She resisted all nudges towards relinquishing even the tiniest bit of power to her adopted son. She did rule well, as I mentioned in the previous episode, but it has been speculated that she might have been less than forthcoming in preparing Eric for the throne. She left him out of court meetings and only fed him such information she deemed necessary. Though she had formally adopted Eric, it seems she did little to combat the personal dislike with which Eric was met in her own court. He was, throughout his life in Denmark, known as Eric of Pomerania, or in Danish, Erik Epoman, to mark him as a foreigner. Even today, the Danish expression Goel Pomon Til, which roughly translates to go to Pomerania, is a term used to rather impolitely ask someone to get lost. During his reign, Eric had to contend with two pretenders to the throne. These pretenders claimed that they were Olaf, Magreda's long-since-buried son, and they maintained that they had never died, but had patiently waited until the kingdom needed them. And by the early 1400s, Norwegian and Swedish opposition to Magreda's Danish-centric rule had become vocal enough for a pretender to pose a very real threat. Now, one of the pretenders revealed himself to be a peasant and was quickly dealt with, that is to say, put to death. But the other, he became a defender in a legal case which, by and by, formed the basis of a 2021 epic Danish film known simply as Magrede den Förste. The film version is a highly fictionalized account of the events for all documents pertaining to the actual case were burnt together with the imposter in 1402. So while all witness accounts went up in flames, as it were, what stayed in the minds of contemporaries was Magreda's actions and reactions. In Eric, Magreda had found a compliant son who let her do the ruling, whilst he saw to his pleasures. But the false Olaf, as he was known, had disturbingly quickly won the backing of several of Magrede's Swedish enemies, who may or may not have actually believed in his legitimacy, but they were willing to raise his flag in opposition to Magrede. Some even remarked at the stubbornness of the false Olaf, which reminded them of that headstrong boy who had died before his time. During the actual case, Magreda initially declared that if the court found the pretender's story to be true, she would happily embrace him. 
but it has always been speculated she would never have allowed the pretender to actually live to rule. For the disturbance in balance of power the pretender caused was simply too great. So Magrede quickly declared herself satisfied with the court's initial findings that the man who claimed to be her son was a pretender, and she signed his death warrant and witnessed his demise by burning in 1402. But the fact that every single document from this case was burnt alongside the pretender has always given rise to speculation. And the Swedes observed that Magreda might have found herself or felt herself secure enough as the power behind the throne, but she had revealed a weakness, and that weakness was Eric, who was almost unseated during the events of the Pretender. Magreda herself died in 1412, still ruling supreme, while Eric's rule lasted until 1440, when a coup d'etat saw him deposed from all three kingdoms, following years of displeasure at his increasingly Pomeranian-leaning appointments to dukedoms and positions within the clergy. But even as Eric was deposed, the dream of a united north was at the very heart of the sometimes extremely violent power struggles which pitted the Danish crown against the Norwegians and the Swedes. And that is the reason we started this exploration of a 16th century disaster all the way back in the 1300s. For it was the idea and the ideal of the Kalmar Union which would lead to a bloody calamity in Stockholm in 1520. The idea of a united north was most often propagated by the Danish kings and their absolute conviction of their right to rule the lands from which their ancestors hailed. No Danish king ever lived whose forefathers had not trekked across the Norwegian mountains or seen life and death on a Swedish island. They thought it theirs by blood and by heritage, and the Kalmar Union was seen as divine proof of this belief. But it was not only the past which made the Nordic countries so attractive to Denmark. Rule over Norway would bring with it possession of islands close to Scotland, on which lucrative trade ports could be established. And Norway itself offered the strong timber suitable for building long-lasting ships. And Sweden. Well, Sweden's waters opened up to the Baltic Sea and to cod fishing a highly lucrative trade in the medieval world and one which had been almost monopolized by the Hanseatic League. In other words, money, and lots of it, was to be had by ruling all three kingdoms. 
the preservation and later resurrection of the Kalmar Union would drive powerful kings from all the Nordic countries to sail, to march, and attempt to invade the other kingdoms in the hopes and dreams of becoming, once again, that king who united the North. And it was this ruthless ambition which cut through any ties of friendship and blood which would see Christian II of Denmark throw a feast for the Swedish nobility in early November 1520. And it was the unhappy memories of prior failures to win over those Swedes which would tempt Christian to eliminate them all in one fell swoop. So, next time, we jump from the 14th to the 16th century and examine those fateful days which led directly to the Stockholm bloodbath. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to this podcast, Restless Times in History. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.